All right, go ahead and flip to Judges 13. We are uh, studying Samson this evening. Samson is probably the most well-known judge, and uh, the saga is quite extensive, so we're going to dig in, and I'm going to summarize as best I can. Hopefully you were able to read ahead this week. But Judges 13 through 16, and what I'm going to do is actually read uh, just the last part of Judges 16, so you can flip there, specifically verse 23. Let's read Judges chapter 16, verse 23 through the end of the chapter. These are the words of God. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to be glad. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Then the people saw him and praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country, who has slain many of us. So it happened, when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house is established, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, O Lord Yahweh, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. They had uh, gouged out his eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house was established and supported himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent his strength uh, so that the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he put to death by this death were more than those whom he put to death in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down, carried him, brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus he had judged Israel twenty years. Let's pray. Our Father and God, you have assembled us together here for the sake of your name. We admit and know that our being united together is only by your matchless grace, and so we thank you for it. We also confess that we live in a very dark time, and so our prayer is that you would shine the light of your gospel on our hearts and on our world, for we are indeed desperate for it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, tonight our focus is on Samson. Like so many others, though, he is a largely misunderstood man in Scripture. He is definitely controversial, but probably for the wrong reasons, as we'll see. Um, because, again, this is a large text, we're going to summarize it, pull out some themes, and then we'll apply it to our situation. And keep in mind that Samson, Samson's name means little son, or son of sons, S-U-N of S-O-Ns. Uh, little son is probably the most direct, but there's a play on words, as we'll see. But he is Israel's Messiah deliverer. He is Israel's Messiah deliverer. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, he enacts and represents Israel's dilemma. Much like Jesus, there's a lot of parallels with Jesus, as we'll see. But Jesus, when he had his ministry on earth uh, in the way that he did, 
before his death and resurrection, he enacted the kingdom. He was carrying out in his actions what the kingdom does. And he told parables. And the parables were not some future fancies for you know, prophecy people to figure out. He was using parables to describe what he was doing in his day. So the prodigal son story, for example, those parables were describing what he was doing right then and there. Um, and so we, we sort of miss that with the parables, but Samson's kind of like a walking parable in that sense. He teaches us a lot about Israel. But the lesson here, I'm just going to tell you kind of up, up front, the main, one of the main takeaways from Samson is that the people are, of God are strongest when they fully rely on God. So isn't that what the sweet frog in town, frog, fully rely on God? I think that's what it stands for. So... Uh, not to get you excited about that, but <laughs> Samson's story really does tell us that the people of God are strongest. We are at our best. We are at our most possible strength when we are fully relying on God. That is really one of the main central me messages here. And <laughs> sort of the warning that goes with it is that compromise is what gets us into trouble. When we compromise, we have massive inflation. <laughs> when we compromise, we have all sorts of problems economically, politically, and so on. So let's look at our text and walk through it. We begin in chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the prologue to the Samson story. So a note on the front end to kind of put yourself in, in, in your mind. Think of it this way. It is probable that Samuel and Samson, and Obed. Obed is the grandfather of David. We learn that from the end of Ruth. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David. But Samuel, Samson, and Obed were probably all born around the same time. So think of it timeline like that. When Samson was 20 years old, Samuel would have then begun his public ministry, just to give you an idea that they were, in fact, contemporaries. Also, around this time, of Samson, the Ark of the Covenant, you might remember, was taken by the Philistines. And that is in 1 Samuel 4 through 6. But it's really not taken. It's a, the Ark, signifying the presence of God, uh, is a substitute. It was going into captivity in order to free Israel, but that's for a different, uh, a different week. Also, I mentioned this several times before, but just remember that the story of Ruth happens around this time as well. So we're at the tail end of Judges. Um, in a few weeks, we'll come back and finish out with the two appendices that are at the end of the book. But uh, those, this story of Samson goes with Ruth. It goes with the beginning of Samuel. So those are kind of all blended together. So just be thinking about that. Now look at verse 1. In chapter 13, verse 1, we have the final cycle. This is the final cycle of the book. Then the sons of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh, so that Yahweh gave them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. So, 40 years. When have you heard that before? Uh, the number 40, the 40 days, 40 nights, the, uh, the flood. You've heard 40, you, you should be thinking 40 years in the wilderness wandering with chaotic problems under the leadership of Moses. So, here we have the longest time span of oppression. Forty years the Philistines had ruled over them. The Philistines are Egyptians by blood. Okay? They are Egyptians by blood, and Israel is basically back in the wilderness wandering aimlessly. 
sort of like walking around at night in the dark, stubbing your toe. And pay attention here because there's something that's missing in this final cycle. And it's easy to gloss over if you're just reading it at home half distracted while you're making dinner. The, The one thing that's missing is this. Israel isn't crying out completely gone in this section. They're not crying out. Before they cried out, God delivered, but now there's no crying out. Forty years of madness, they haven't cried out yet. And usually when Israel cried out in distress, it was because of the circumstances circumstances that they were going through. It was not full-on repentance. It was usually, ouch, sin's bad and I'm reaping the consequences. God help us. And God is gracious and he does that. But here, there's no crying out. There's no repentance. There's no acknowledgement that what they're doing is a problem. And here is what we can learn from that. They have adopted the disposition of complete servitude and assimilation into pagan culture. Why isn't the church today crying out? We have adopted and assimilated completely into pagan culture. And what's pagan about it are things like public schools and fiat currency and status controls. Like all the things that we lament, those come from pagan systems and worldviews. The church isn't crying out. We're, we're here. This is where we're at. So when you've grown used to statism and slavery and idolatry, why, why even cry out, right? And yet God will deliver them again. Such is his grace. Now as the narrative unfolds, we learn in verse 2 about a man a certain man of the Danites. We don't hear a ton about the Danites. This man's name is Manoah. The name Dan means judge. So it is fitting that Samson is a Danite from the tribe of Dan. And the angel of the Lord comes and visits the mother because that's what all is always happening. Remember, Mary was visited by the angel. So was Hannah, the mother of Samuel. So angels always go to mom. <laughs> that's kind of how that works. And here we find that Samson, Samson is the first judge from, he, he's declared to be as a judge from before he was even conceived in his mother's womb. So up until this point, Yahweh has just raised somebody up who's already born, who's already living. Yahweh didn't raise up a deliverer who was already born. He made one from scratch in the womb. That's a huge Uh, point of emphasis here. The angel tells the mother that he is to be a Nazarite to God from the the womb. And look at verse 5. He will save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So we're told, okay, this this is good news. Manoah, the husband, is informed by his wife about this visitation. And Manoah pleads with Yahweh to send the angel back because he wants to hear for himself. So God is gracious, answers that prayer. The angel comes back and we have this another situation just like Gideon where they prepare food for the angel and after partaking the angel though goes up in flames and that is a foreshadowing of Christ and his substitutionary work on the cross remember what was put outside of the garden of eden the flaming sword so this idea of flames and judgment and prevention well now god is foreshadowing taking up that judgment on himself now, Samson is to be a Nazarite. Nazir means separate, not to be confused with Nazareth, the town where Jesus was born, but Nazirite, N-A-Z-I-R-I-T-E, means that he isn't to drink from the vine, 
So no wine, no strong, no strong drink, nor is he to eat anything unclean. And those are stipulated in the first parts of Leviticus. The boy's going to be a Nazarite from womb to the tomb. That's the idea. He's not to shave his head ever. Now, with long hair, the person who took a Nazarite vow would put his hair into seven braids or locks and tying them together, of course, at the bottom. And that was, signific- that was significant because it signified the sevenfold spirit of God being anointed. Um, we see that in the book of Revelation. The, the Nazarite, Samson, was not to touch a dead body. Touching dead bodies makes one unclean. You have to go outside the camp. In other words, what Samson was to do was to adopt the standards of the priest in the tabernacle, but he's not in the tabernacle. He's a walking, functional priest out and about. And that is to say that he lived before the face of God, Coram Deo, every moment of every day. So as a priest, what are priests supposed to do? They're supposed to be guardians. They're supposed to be representatives of the bride of Yahweh. That's why, for example, uh, long hair belongs to women. Paul emphasizes that. And the reason is because that's a feminine thing. And so the connection with the Nazarite wearing long hair is he's representing the women of the bride of Yahweh. That's kind of some of the theology behind it. So he was to be a new Adam. He was to be a Lord protector of the bride of Yahweh. That was his task. He wants to be, uh, he was to be a singly minded, fierce loyalist to the dominion of Yahweh. That's what a Nazarite was supposed to do. Now, note in, ver- note in verse 18, the angel's name is Wonderful. What do we know about Jesus from Isaiah 9? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. So this connection. Uh, verse 19, Yahweh did a wondrous thing. There's a play on words here. God is about to do something amazing. And then look at verse 25. And the Spirit of Yahweh began to stir him. Love the idea, the language of the stirring. We've seen the Spirit clothe people, come upon people, but here the Spirit stirs him. We have here the makings of a new exodus, something exciting, something wonderful, led by a new Moses into this new holy land. Revival and reformation, will it come? That's the excitement of it. Now chapter 14 is about Samson's marriage to a Philistine. Samson wants a Philistine wife. He's supposed to deliver Israel from the Philistines, not marry those outside the covenant, right? That's, well, Samson is Israel doing whatever he sees fit in his own eyes. Yes, it seems like Israel, like Samson, was unteachable, uh, impulsive, just reacting in the moment. But is that the way we should interpret this? Look at verse 4. And you may have glossed over this in your reading, but look at verse 4. However, his father and mother did not know this marriage that he wanted with the Philistine, did not know that it was of Yahweh. For he, the LSB capitalizes the H, he referring to Yahweh, and in Hebrew, that's the closest noun, so it makes sense to interpret it that way. Not Samson, but Yahweh. For Yahweh was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Israel and the Philistines are one and the same. They have become indistinguishable. They have been united by spiritual idolatry and harlotry. And they must be torn apart. They must be ripped apart. And Samson is the one who's going to do the job. 
So God, along with Samson, was, quote, seeking an occasion, meaning they were looking to pick a fight. It was a covenantal evangelism fight, absolutely, but it was a fight nonetheless. False peace must be broken up. Okay? False peace must be broken up. Now, this marriage proposal, Samson with the Philistine woman, is an actual representation of the gospel going to the nations. Rather than conformity to the nations, wanting to just be like them, Israel was supposed to be unique. They were supposed to be different. We're supposed to be different than the world in some regards. We're supposed to be able to offer a better way of life. True salvation in the holistic sense. If they commit spiritual adultery by pursuing the nations, they will end up blind and destitute, which they have in fact become. They can be strong. Israel can be strong. The church can be strong if we will trust Yahweh. So Samson's actions, most every commentator says he wanted a Philistine wife. How ridiculous. No, there's, there's a, a point here. He represents Israel. And he's representing the ridiculousness of their idolatry. Samson's actions are intentional evangelical provocations meant to aid in divorcing Israel from the Philistines. Israel had taken on a new wife. They had taken on another lover, which Hosea condemns. Eventually, Israel had to act. They had to rein in Samson. Samson's their loose cannon. We all know we have family members that are like that, right? They're just loose cannons. That was Samson, kind of embarrassing. But he was far too out of control for their liking. <laughs> sort of like Martin Luther and his relationship to the Romanists and the Catholic Church. But look at verse 7 of chapter 14. So he went down and spoke to the woman, and she was right in the eyes of Samson. What's the theme of the book? People doing whatever's right in their own eyes. Samson's doing what's right in his eyes, but he's doing it from a godly perspective. Um, Samson is Israel the way Israel is supposed to be. They're supposed to judge rightly with the eyes of Yahweh, not their own eyes. And here we have the famous lion incident. Kids, get ready. This is a fun story. A young lion comes approaching Samson, and the spirit of Yahweh came rushing upon him, and he killed the lion, probably breaking his jaw. Samson was a strong man when he was clothed with the spirit. He killed the lion. Remember, David did before uh, as well. Later on, David killed a lion. Later, Samson comes back. He sees the dead lion. There were bees in there. Honey was in the carcass. The language tells us that he didn't touch the body, the dead body. He kept his Nazarite vow. Probably what he did was scrape it out of something and put it into his hands. And he ate it. Probably some sort of tool. Who knows? You know a spork. Maybe that's when sporks came around. I don't know. So honey in Psalm 19 is a symbol of the law of God. It's a sign of covenantal blessings. We're going to come to that. Just keep that in mind. Now, then there's a riddle. He tells a riddle. There's a seven-day feast that begins. He's getting married to the Philistine woman, and uh, the, the, the feast begins. But the Philistines, they want the soon-to-be wife to entice Samson to tell her the riddle. What is this riddle? all about. I mean, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. He, he messes with them, and what's this riddle? They can't figure out. That demonstrates their weakness. Um, Samson is far superior in his intellect than they are. However, on day seven, she succeeds 
and tricks Samson and then tells the Philistines so they win. But what's going on here? Now, I, I dug, a little, dug a little bit in this passage because it's always perplexed me. But here's kind of what scholars, many of them are, have a, a consensus on. One, remember the Philistines were the Egyptians. Okay. Two, the garden of Egyptian culture was a lion-like sphinx of which remnants remain today. That was a guardian god of, of Egypt. Um, the, fink, the Sphinx was a master at riddles in Egyptian culture, and the Sphinx represented the sun god Ra. That's how Egyptian culture worked. So Samson's victory, he, remember, he's God's son, S-U-N and S-O-N, and his victory over the lion and the subsequent riddle is, in fact, an assault on Egypt meant to deliver and let the people go. That's the symbolic connection. Uh, the plagues that God sent to let them go under the leadership of Moses, all attacks on various gods in Egyptian culture. When, the, when it, remember, darkness came over the land, Ra was the god of Egypt, so God was going after their idols. And same thing here, when he, when he probably just snapped the jaw of the lion, is probably how he killed it. Either that or he had some sort of massive right hook and knock the lion out. Whatever the case, this was an attack on the Philistines and his God. The Philistines had roared at Israel like the lion had roared at Samson, but God would tear him apart. Look at verse 18, one of the funniest verses in Scripture. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Samson's soon-to-be wife was not kind to her husband and told the riddle to the Philistines. They figured it out, and they won the debate. And that's Samson's response. If you had not plowed with my heifer, <laughs> don't, don't call women that, but, uh, but here's, the, here's the idea. To trick one's wife into unfaithfulness is to plow one's field with your neighbor's heifer. There's a connection, and Samson offers the sweetness of the law of God to Israel and the Philistines. Both of them reject, but the language of plowing with my heifer, obviously full of euphemisms, okay, very much in Hebrew language, and that indicates that this was probably some sort of adultery involved. She was unfaithful. Perhaps that was how the enticement came from one of the Philistines, enticed her to get the trick, and perhaps there was some sort of cheating that went on during the process. So the spiritual harlotry of Israel being an unfaithful bride to Yahweh by going along with the Philistines and what they're doing is clearly pictured here. So Samson loses the wager. He has to give up, the bet was, 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes, clothing being a sign of dignity, of honor in that culture. So he loses the bet. But then, if you see there in your map there in the first section... He goes to the city of um, Ashkelon. The spirit comes upon him mightily. He strikes down 30 men from a nearby city. He takes their clothes. <laughs> he takes their clothes and gives it to the men who won the bet in, in the Philistines there. They got the riddle from somewhere else. He gets the clothes from someone else. He kills 30 men, takes their stuff, and then gives it to the Philistines. It says, ha. His wife is given to a friend, a best man of sorts, but the, the woman actually remained with her father. Now, don't misunderstand this saga. It's like Jerry Springer-esque, it seems like. 
Samson was calculated the entire time. He was calculated the entire time. His goal was to see the Philistines repent and believe the gospel. That was his aim. Had his wife actually feared the Lord instead of fearing, and not just fearing the Lord, but receiving the gospel message, receiving what Samson was offering, then perhaps the Philistines would be visited with grace and, and repentance. That's the idea. But she rejected that offer, sided with the people who would eventually kill her. She paid the price. Now go to chapter 15. Samson now tussles with the Philistines. Samson goes back to retrieve his wife. She's with someone else already. The parents assume, hey, you got rid of your wife. Why do you want her back now? We thought you basically hated her. But the parents offer up the younger sister. And, but eh, Samson is angered by this. This is another one of those funny, funny stories. But Samson goes and he catches 300 foxes. And he ties them together two by two. So pair, 150 pairs of foxes, with their tie, they, he tied their uh, tails together, and he put a torch there as well and tied them, lit it. And what happened? Well, they burned down the fields. They burned the grain. They burned the agricultural landscape in the Philistines. What's going on? Well, we also know that there was fire involved. What did the Philistines do to the parents? They burned them and the daughter because they believed that she was uh, betraying them. All this like evil eating evil sort of thing. The gospel is rejected. But the text says in verse uh, verse 8 of chapter 15, Samson fought back and struck them ruthlessly, that is hip on thigh, with a great slaughter. What, What is with the foxes and the burning down of the grain? Well, here's the connection. The Philistines stole... Samuel's harvest. And what is the harvest of a marriage relationship? The kids. Right? You reap what you sow. You sow a certain thing, you reap a certain result. That's what children are. They stole that from Samson, burning her and the parents. What does he do? He burns their harvest. He takes away their agriculture. Justice prevails, an eye for an eye. He offers the defeated Philistine men, he offers them up as a sacrifice to the Lord. The burnt grain offering of Leviticus is echoed here as well. So Samson's just, he's at war, he's fighting, he's fighting back. So the Philistines, they're upset at Samson because he keeps causing problems for them. And they respond by going to Judah, asking them to capture Samson so they can pay him back. This <laughs> is... This is really funny. Judah fears the wrath of the Philistines more than the wrath of Yahweh. So Judah agrees. Yeah, this Samson guy is a problem for us. He keeps disrupting our loyalty to the Philistines and their idols. So they agree. 3,000 Israelite men. Samson's an uncontainable wild lion-like beast. It took 3,000 Israelite men to go to find Samson, who was hiding in a cave... They're upset because of the Philistines, uh, the, the Philistines, their rulers over Judah. The Philistines are mad, so we're mad, so we got to take care of this problem. So they go to the cave and they arrest him. 3,000 men to arrest one man. Reminds me of Superman kind of walking with handcuffs, like, okay, this is theatrics. Superman can get out of handcuffs either by lasering them off with his eyes or just simply moving. 
right? So this is Samson, kind of that same moment. Samson allows them to capture him. The condition is, he says, you can't kill me. You can give me the Philistines, fine, but you can't kill me. And so they agree. 3,000 men arrest him. They take him to the Philistines. It's like, how bad was it in Israel? The, the Philistines are their true masters, not Yahweh. Samson is a clear and present danger to our idolatry. We've got to contain this man. They're working against God. That's the theme of Judges. They're working against God. In verse 14, the Spirit of Yahweh came upon him. The ropes literally withered away, burned away because of his strength. He found a jawbone of a nearby dead donkey. Um, no more Nazarite vow? No, it's wartime. You're allowed to do that. He grabs the donkey jawbone and he kills a thousand men with it. Shamgar, earlier, remember the ox goad? One verse of Shamgar killed 600 Philistines. But here he grabs the jawbone. The jawbone, probably a foot, probably even a foot and a half long uh, instrument of war, if you will. And after he's done slaying the thousand Philistine men with a jawbone, I mean, savagery. He threw it away from him, the Bible says. He was done, he threw it away, meaning that he's still ceremonial pure. He's pure in his Nazarite vow. He only used the jawbone for that moment. Now, verse 16 is a pun. Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down 1,000 men. We have another uh, poetry session from him. And it's a pun. The word for donkey and heap or pile is, is actually the same. We all know the old English word for donkey. With the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in mass, as one scholar put it. This is a pun. It's a play on words. Um, perhaps another one is, with the red donkey's jawbone, I have reddened them with red, meaning the blood that was involved with a thousand men being crushed with a jawbone. Samson's a warrior, but he's a poet. It's like, this is great. Who else was a warrior and a poet later on? David. Everybody, we're prepping for David. That's the idea of judges. So afterwards, I mean, <laughs> Samson's thirsty. Who wouldn't? Anybody grabbed a jawbone and killed a thousand men with it? He makes you kind of thirsty. So he cries out to Yahweh. He thanks God for the victory, but he needs a drink. He needs a beverage. God provides the drink. He splits the hollow, perhaps in a rock, in a, in a, in a tree. Water comes come flying out of it. He's refreshed. And look at verse 15. Excuse me. Chapter 15, verse 20. He judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So water, by the way, is a symbol of the Exodus. The Exodus is here. The new Moses is here. How will they respond? The battle's only just begun. Now chapter 16. We've got to move quickly. Delilah is in here and Dagon, their demise. That's what's happening here. Samson visits a prostitute in Gaza, a main city in Philistia. Um, Israel hoard after other gods. Samson's illustrating the problem for them. And when the men find out, find out, the lords of the Philistines, they plan to kill him when he walks out of the city gates. One way in, one way out. They, they know he's there. They're going to kill him when he comes out. Samson leaves at midnight and he picks up the gates and rips the posts out and takes them with him. This is it's funny, but it's meant to be funny as well. He, he hauls them off to Hebron. He takes them, he takes them away uh, quite, a, quite a distance. So without gates, the city is being, at risk of being taken. Where is Israel with the backup? 
He ripped off the gates of hell. There's no gates. Where's the backup? Now is the time to strike. Gideon struck at night. Now we can, the sun had ripped it off, right? The Samson, the sun, where are they at? Where's the backup? Listen, when you read this, you should be thinking that the Philistines can be easily defeated. They can be easily defeated as easy as it was for Samson to take the gate with him. It's that simple. If only they would be faithful. Enter Delilah. Delilah's name, interestingly enough, it means the night. Delilah means the night. And here we have Samson, whose name means sun. Interesting connection. We don't have the time to go into it except to say a couple of things. First, Samson loved Delilah. And we're to view that as a genuine love. He really loved her. She may have been an Israelite. We don't know for sure. But this moment is the beginning of the downfall of Samson's sin, and it paved the way for the final showdown. Second, same sort of trickery is involved here. Three times she puts him to the test. She tries to figure out what is the secret to his strength. What makes him so, is he lifting weights, creatine, what is it? Why is he being, why is he so strong? The Philistines want to use her to get to him. Same thing happening. Three times she puts him to the test. She thinks it's magic. The Philistines think it's magic. She may have been a Philistine. We don't know. We just don't know. Third, as a result of him not coming clean with her, she plays on his emotions. Honey, you don't love me, do you? He really does. She urges him to the point where his soul was annoyed to death. Anybody get there before with your spouse? My soul is annoyed to death, husband or wife. Interesting text in Proverbs about that. Samson breaks. He breaks. He explains that he's been a Nazarite to God from his mother's womb and that his long hair is the secret to his strength. That was the moment everything changed. That was the moment. He, he had betrayed his commitment to Yahweh. Magic wasn't the secret sauce. What was the secret sauce to his strength? It was obedience. And that means that compromise is what is most detrimental to the people of God. So what does she do? She tells the Lord, to the, Lord of the Philistines. She shaved his head while sleeping on her lap. There's innuendo there. When he awakens, he's ready to fight. Philistines are coming. He's ready to fight. But guess what? He's bald. And verse 20 says, He did not know that Yahweh had left him. Always assume that compromise works against the Holy Spirit. The Philistines seized him. They thought one way to contain him was to gouge out his eyes, so they took his eyeballs out. They dragged him to Gaza, one of the main cities of Philistine, out of the five cities. They bound him with bronze chains. They put him in prison to work at the grain mill. If you want the nation's gods, you're going to have them. His hair, however, began to grow back, we're told. So it's God, not Samson in his vow, that gives him the strength. It's always God. It's always God's grace. Apparently he repented here, so we already read it, but the Philistines threw a haughty party in celebration of their god, Dagon. They believe Dagon has defeated Yahweh. This means war. God will not be tolerant of that. They drag Samson out of prison. They hope to be amused by his defeat. They stand him between the pillars. He can't see anything. This is Israel. They can't see anything. 
Doing right isn't in their own eyes. Well, what happens when you do what is right in your own eyes? You don't have eyes. So they put him between the two pillars and they want to mock him. Pillars in a temple were arms of the gods that upheld their civilization. They had a garden probably at the roof of this temple to Dagon. And we know there are 3,000 on the roof. There are probably another three, maybe more underneath. But that's what the pillars are representative of, the arms of the gods holding them up. And since he couldn't see, he asked the boy who was there, help me, get, help me find where these are. Ah, here they are. Two pillars in the middle. This is perfect. And the scene is set. Temples full of men and women. The five lords of the Philistines. It's like the president, vice president, and everybody's in there. All the priests from the temple of Dagon are there. It's the party of all parties. The scene is set. 3,000 upstairs. They're looking upon Samson. They're scorning and mocking him. Samson cries out to Yahweh, give me strength one more time, please. He wants to avenge himself and his God from this disgusting mockery, what the Philistines had done. So he grabbed the pillars, one with each hand, and he had the strength to push probably sizable pillars. He pushed them away. The building collapses. Dagon is dealt a death blow. He died along, Samson died along with everybody else, a picture of what lengths Israel should be willing to go to win the nations. His brothers and fathers get a hold of his body. They bury him with his family, and he judged Israel 20 years. So what do we, a lot of craziness, it seems like. What do we learn from a text like this? Well, just as Delilah was right in Samson's eyes, so sin and covenant rebellion was right in the eyes of Israel. What we have are people without self-control, without definitional objectivity, meaning sin, in order to be sin, in order to be able to call sin, sin, it must be named as such by the triune living God and His standards. Sin is not a violation of yourselves. It's not a violation of your self-set standards, your conscience, your... It's not even community standards. I hate that language. Facebook. You violated community standards. You have no standards. But yourself. But that's not what sin is. Sin is not that. Right and wrong is not subjective, meaning it's not up to the subject, you and me, to determine. Sin, by definition, is the violation and transgression of God and His law word. Period. That's what sin is. Sin is also deceitful in that it will try to leverage your ability to rationalize things away. How do we rationalize sin in our lives? We downplay it. Eh, it wasn't that big of a deal. We blame shift. Adam and Eve all over again. It was the woman you gave me. It was the serpent. No self-responsibility. We minimize the sins. Well, it wasn't that big of a deal. It's not really, God's not that offended by it. These are all ways that we, in doing what is right in our own eyes, shuffle the deck to try to hide the damage of sin and idolatry. I love this quote. I looked at Thomas Brooks. He had in his volume one. It said, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. It looks great on the outside, but it's really evil on the inside. See, the problem with blessings is that when one presumes upon them, he forgets where they came from. When we presume upon the graces of God, 
and, and God owes it to us, or this was my own doing. Well, we forget where they come from. Christianity is not about going through the motions, presuming God's grace while we live however we want, however we see fit in our own eyes. In our text, everyone is using everyone. Did you notice that theme? Everyone is using everyone else. Samson is, in his downfall, uses Delilah for pleasure. The Philistines use the first woman to get to Samson. They do it for Delilah again. The Philistines use Israel to get to Samson. Delilah uses Samson to get to fame. She wanted notoriety and blessing of the Philistines. Israel uses Yahweh to a means to some other end. And on and on we go, everyone's using everyone else. Which means that if we will not love God, we will not love people. We will instead use people. We will treat people as pawns to get to what we want. We will use them to fulfill our demands and our wishes. We will try to control them. We will try to manipulate them. We will try to get them to act our way because what we think is correct. And that's a way to get on top of some perceived social pile. Now, is Samson like Jesus? Yes. God anointed one man to deliver God's people, but the people did not recognize him. Jesus went on unrecognized, and Samson did too. They have him arrested. They have him turned over to the Gentiles in order to kill him. And like Samson, Jesus submits. Jesus is put to death, but where? We have the place of the skull. One of the places where the jawbone incident, the place of the jawbone, the jawbone hill, uh, this same thing in the place of the skull where Jesus was put to death. The dead body of Christ slays the enemy of, enemies of God, just like Samson, bringing them condemnation. Unless we repent, of course. It is there at the cross where we have a sermon, a message to the world, the same riddles almost that Samson gave God's Spirit revives him, Jesus, on the cross as he, just like Samson, thirsted. Note the connection when Jesus said, I thirst, one of the famous sayings of Jesus. But only for a little while, Jesus bows his head on the cross and the world collapses in on him like the pillars in the house of Dagon in Samson's day. This thirsty Jesus, he gives us spring water, fresh living water. Remember the soldier who punctured his side? What came out? Blood and water. He gave us living water, rushes out of his side with blood, baptizing us, forgiving our sins, forgiving his people. And then, and only then, do they see him for who he truly is. They recognize truly this was the Son of God, as the Roman soldier had done. Samson, like Christ, was betrayed, handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, humiliated, blinded. Jesus was blinded by a blindfold, so he couldn't see either. Remember, they were slapping him. Who hit you? Tell us. He was made the subject of man's wrath and scorn. Herod wanted Jesus to do a little dance and impress him, and he wasn't impressive at all. Jesus, like Samson, was betrayed with silver. And yet the deaths of these men gives life to the people of God. Samson only temporary, but Jesus for eternal. What of the lion and the honey? Samson is the lion who will die and bring the sweetness of salvation to God's people. Ultimately, it is Christ, the lion of Judah, who in his death gives us the sweet words of salvation. 
It was as easy to defeat death on the cross as it was for Samson to defeat the lion. The 300 of Gideon, remember that story, was very impressive. 300 men against 135,000 Midianites. Very impressive. But how about one man? That's impressive. How about one man taking on the entire world? That is King Jesus. But what is sweet about the death of Christ? What is sweet? Why do we call it Good Friday? Well, in Samson's death, the enemies of God died with him. But in Christ's death, it is the friends of God that die with him. Why? Well, like Samson, there's death involved in the cross of Christ. But unlike Samson, Jesus' death becomes a substitutionary death for his people. His death is our death. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 3. We die with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. That is our death. For those who reject the gospel, the cross isn't their death. The cross is their judgment and condemnation. They must and they will die for their sins. Everyone will die for their sins. But either Jesus will do it for you or you will do it yourself. The scandal here, as we wrap up, the scandal here is that God justifies the wicked. That's the ultimate riddle. That's the ultimate scandal. How does God declare the wicked who have profaned his name, how does he declare them in the right? How does he declare them righteous? In Christ, our guilt and sins and transgressions are nailed to the cross. And it was Jesus, the perfect God-man, God and man, who could bear the weight of it all. The gospel riddle that the Pharisees and the religious leaders couldn't figure out, they put him on the cross and that was their own undoing. They brought Samson out to mock him. It was their own undoing. They had five minutes before that. Dagon beated Yahweh. This is so great. Let us celebrate. Five minutes later, they're all dead. That's their own undoing. That's what the cross is. It's our own undoing. If we put him there, and we did, it's our undoing, unless we repent and believe on him. All this talk of death and violence it seems a little bit over the top, right? Think of it this way. The rescue of God looks violent. The rescue of God looks violent because sometimes a violent separation from his people and their idols is necessary to wake them up. Something I've said for a long time, but it's a terrible thing to have your idol taken from you. It hurts. What Samson did should have awakened the Israelites. The news headlines the next day must have been impressive. Somebody tweeted it out and it went viral in Israel, I'm sure. It should have wakened them up. Did you hear what happened? Samson defeated like 10,000 Philistines just by pushing pillars. He's dead. We're thankful for that. He's our substitute. Amazing. It should have wakened them up. What Christ has done should awaken the church. For who can contend with the spirit of the living God? Spirit-filled men and women exist with courage and boldness. Spirit-filled men are strong and determined. They cling to the word by faith. And faith is not the absence of your mind, friends. It's the setting of your mind, your heart, and your soul on the promises of the word of God. It's being anchored and integrated into this integral word revelation of God himself, the triune God. That's what makes us strong. 
What makes us strong in the world is not us. It's not any of you. It's not me. What makes us strong in the world is the word of God. And listen, Samson was a strong man who became weak. Right? That's the story of Samson. He was a strong man who became very weak. But he finished his life as a weak man who was stronger than ever. That's the story of Israel. That's the story of Jesus and his glorious gospel. When Samson is strong, it's because he was in the Lord's service. When he was weak, he was compromised. When you sin and you compromise, you are blind and you are weak. So we have to see it for what it really is. Weakness. But aren't, aren't we up against some powerful people? How, everything looks bad in the news. Everything looks really bleak. How can we possibly win the day when so much insanity has taken over? Listen. God gives prosperity to the wicked so as to cause His people to repent. He prospers the wicked. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. It's all Disney's billions of dollars. That's coming our way soon. Any minute now. I'm sure of it. God gives prosperity to the wicked so as to cause His people to repent. Listen, our problem, please hear me, our ultimate problem isn't the globalists, the humanists, the Satanists, the Kabbalists, the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, the CDC, the transhuman evolutionists, the Freemasons. Its problem is all of those people are. Our greatest problem is ourselves. Who we worship, why we worship, and what we do about the tremendous strength that we've been given in the gospel. So friends, if you want to be strong, if you want to be strong, then see yourself as weak and beggarly without the gospel, without the cross, and without the word of God. That's where strength lies. That's how we are strong. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you admitting our own weakness and our frailty. <laughs> we, ad we admit that oftentimes we do think ourselves to be pretty, pretty important, pretty strong, pretty confident in what it is we think about things. And the reality is we know that apart from your cross, ap apart from the empty tomb, apart from the Word of God, we are in fact weak and beggarly. We also know from your scriptures that you have in the cross used the foolishness of the cross to shame the wise, to humble the arrogant. So I pray, Lord, that you would wake us up. I don't know how bad it's got to get for your church to rise up, but dare I ask, Father, that you do whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever it takes to awaken your people and see that that cross that your son was crucified on is the most powerful and potent thing in the world today. So may we be bold, humble, bold, confident in you. Would you strengthen us this day in Christ's name we pray. Amen.